This episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast is sponsored by AWS Energy. AWS brings the most advanced and secure cloud services and deep industry expertise across energy, utilities, and sustainable energy sectors. Together with a broad partner ecosystem, AWS is accelerating the energy transition through practical innovations to deliver energy efficiently, reliably, sustainably, and responsibly. Learn more at aws.amazon.com energy. Humanity is growing and connecting. Tomorrow's world needs more energy from more places. But to find our net zero future, we must overcome the natural constraints of many new energy sources. This is the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, where we look at the energy challenges of modern life and the innovators finding solutions. Join us for a low-carbon, high-energy conversation with your host, Joe Batir. This views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity. Hello, and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast brought to you by AWS Energy. I'm your host, Joe Batir. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. I am here today with Jordan Yates, marketing engineer, YouTuber, and fellow podcast host, host of the Energy Pipeline on the Oil & Gas Global Network. Today, we are going to be talking all things science, science communication, the day job, the day job that Jordan has outside of all of these other activities she does, and kind of what does all of this mean? And and I'm going to try and get her take on how to do science communication for the energy transition as well. So Jordan, thank you for joining me on the show today. If you would please share with me in the audience your background and a quick introduction to all that you do. You know, uh, I'm so happy to be here. And the fact that somebody finally was able to summarize what I do in like a sentence. Typically, I get nervous when someone's like, what do you do? Because I'm like, oh, gosh, what do I say? I do so much. You really you killed it. So yeah, day to day, I am a marketing engineer for a specialty ceramic capacitor manufacturer. And on the side, I have a content and digital marketing like business where I do technical content where I make videos, uh, marketing, newsletters, campaigns, things like that for my customers, which can be anything from industrial automation and controls to oil and gas. It's kind of all over the place, but they're all connected by the technical aspect. And then I also, like you said, I am a host for the Energy Pipeline, a new podcast sponsored by Caterpillar. And then I have my own personal podcast, which unfortunately gets a lot less attention from me because I'm doing so much. It's called Failing For You. It's basically where I'm very honest about all the things I suck at and how I've gotten better at them over time and what I've learned from my mistakes. And then, yeah, I have a YouTube channel. I do a lot on LinkedIn. I I do too much, I'll tell you that. But I I guess you asked how I got started, kind of my background. I am a mechanical engineer by trade. So I studied that at Texas Tech. I graduated in 2020. So that's kind of where my career took a weird shift. 
throughout college, I did a lot of oil and gas internships from service companies to upstream reservoir engineering, things like that. And oil and gas is my passion. But unfortunately, in 2020, I don't know if you guys remember, but there was not a whole lot of oil and gas hiring. So I took a leap over to industrial automation, which I knew absolutely nothing about. I took one circuits class and I was like, okay, here I am. Uh, I'm going to learn this and it's going to be my career now. And then I did that in sales for about a year and a half and then switched to where I am now as a marketing engineer for, like I said, a ceramic capacitor manufacturer. So kind of have a foot in both worlds again <clears throat> now that I am the host of a oil and gas podcast. So I get to be back in the industry while still being in manufacturing. I think that is is very exciting maybe i don't know if exciting is the right word but the the whole <laughs> chaotic <laughs> yeah, the the storyline there of of what you went to school for what you wanted to do how you were setting yourself up for that the entire your entire school and academic career mm -hmm. and then ultimately life happened and the market happened and you ended up having to pivot into something else i think that is that is important for everybody to hear, whether it's it's our guests and and audience and people all the way from the sea level all the way down to students who are listening to our shows, because ultimately there are going to be those curveballs. And and I think that the way that you've been able to pivot into what you do now is 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 cool and and encouraging for all of those that may be graduating now and, and may be confused as to what they should be doing. Now- Yeah, I think I almost enjoy when things don't go as planned because I realize I'm not that creative of a person and my plans were pretty straightforward. Like I just wanted to be a reservoir engineer. I wanted to sit in a cubicle and be left alone day in, day out. And now I have so much more in my life and that's because things didn't go as planned. So sometimes I'm like, I hope my plan fails so I could have something more exciting happening that I didn't like put too much thought into and then I have to adapt because that's where life just becomes so much more fun. Yeah, absolutely. And recently you got to interact with the Boston Dynamics spot dog. <gasps> yes. That how often would you get to do that if you were a reservoir engineer sitting in a cubicle? Probably never. So um, that's why it's things like that where I'm just like, thank God my plans did not work out because now, I mean, you know, they're they're slowly coming around and being integrated into like refineries and things that are related to oil and gas. But all the oil and gas people know that like if you work upstream in reservoir, you're not going to be hanging out in refineries often. So I would still be so far apart from that world. So that's why I'm just so I'm so happy things worked out the way they did. And that's why when people ask me my five year plan, I'm like, I don't have one. I have a like six month one and we're going to see where it goes from there because I don't want to limit myself based off of what I know now. Yeah, that's that's an interesting thought. And, and maybe we will come back to the six month versus five year plan. <laughs> I do want to ask, though, because we haven't talked so much about the the development of your personal podcast and the YouTube and really where this media creation and marketing came from. So I'd like to talk more about that. How did you end up starting what I, I guess I'll just label it as a as a technical marketing media company? 
Yeah. So when I was in college, I, like I said, I worked for an oil and gas service company. I was the marketing specialist there, which basically at first I was doing admin tasks and then they were like, Hey, we need to get some more customer outreach and find people to meet with. Meanwhile, I'm 20 years old. Our customer base was facilities engineers for upstream oil and gas companies. And I'm like, why would any of them want to meet with me? I have like a third of a degree. I don't know anything. Like, how do I connect with these people? Like, where do you find them? <clears throat> so that's when I got onto LinkedIn and I started connecting with people. I found it to be very successful just to, you know, make a lot of connections, message people directly. And I was like, okay, this is a really cool tool if you aren't networked in the industry and you want to get to know people. So then when I fast forward in a couple of years, became a sales engineer for <clears throat> an industrial automation and controls company, I was like, okay, I remember that this is an easy way to meet people because I had no contacts in this industry because I did a complete shift. So what I started doing was reaching out to people on LinkedIn while I was also doing my cold calls. But I realized that nobody knew who our company was. It didn't have the name recognition that the company thought it had. So anytime I would get on the phone and I'm like, hey, I work for so-and-so, they're like, don't know who that is. And so I'm like, oh my God, like, how do I explain it really fast? And so instead of doing that, I was like, how can I get people to know who I am before I call them? So I thought I want to connect with my ideal customers on LinkedIn, but also put out content to where they know who Jordan is when Jordan messages or calls them. So I would post pictures and videos of my products being like, this is what I have. Look how cool this is. And it was awesome because it got me into like all my tier one accounts. I had 20 plus meetings a week, whereas my you know fellow coworkers had barely three or four most weeks because it was still COVID times. And I gained a lot of recognition for taking incredibly dry concepts and making them fun because they'd never seen anybody post with a VFD holding it, smiling with it, being like, look how cool this is because that's not normal. And so when I realized this really works, I used it a lot for sales. And then long story short, quit that job. And I gained a, a following. I had like eight or 9,000 followers on LinkedIn and they were like, uh, ma'am, like, where did you go? <laughs> and I was like, uh, I don't sell things anymore. I don't know what to post. So I just kind of went dark for like seven or eight months while I started my new job because it was marketing. Didn't really need to post because I didn't have like commission goals or anything like that anymore. I was salary. But I was like, you know, I miss having interactions with this community. So what I did was I found something where I could bring my YouTube channel back. I could bring my presence on LinkedIn back without having to be selling something, but just having a way to engage. So that's when I got into soldering, which if you guys aren't familiar with soldering, it's like baby welding on circuit boards. I decided, you know, this would be a fun skill to learn. It feels manufacturing related. It's technical and I can do a learn to solder with me. So that's kind of how I revamped my YouTube channel and I would do like soldering tutorials. I posted my first ever soldering live as I'm doing it because I'm like, I want you guys to see how much better I get. It was horrible, but the people on LinkedIn loved it. They supported it. They're like, this is so fun. You're so honest. And as I was learning these things, I was like, I suck at so much and like I'm stressed out and People think I'm just doing such a good job because I'm showing them the highlights. And so that's where I came up with failing for you. And I was like, I wish I had a place to tell people like I'm struggling too, but here's how I still keep coming out on top from it. 
So that's where it was more like I added the human element to my personal brand was through that podcast. And then eventually I got to the point where my LinkedIn just kept growing and growing and I had never done customer outreach. I had people see my proof of concept through the podcast, through the YouTube channel. And they're like, you make technical stuff fun. Can you help us make our technical stuff fun? And so that's how Jordan Yates Marketing was born. And I basically now will help technical companies create a marketing strategy, but the the core of it is the content creation. So we'll create videos around their products, and then we use the videos to implement the rest of the marketing strategy. And now I do a lot more paid stuff to where I'm not making as many soldering videos, but I am getting paid a lot to make videos for other people. So I know I, I do not know how to tell that story in a concise way, but that is that is how it happened. That is how all of this chaos was born. <laughs> I think that's it's it's fun to hear. And I agree that it's so important to share share our failures because that is that is where I most often learn is when I am beating my head against a wall trying to figure out why my code's not working or why something just isn't making sense as far as doing some type of exploration, why it's not all coming together. And, and it, it is, it is a, it's a, it's a tough spot because when you are client facing, you want to say, yeah, I am the smartest. I am the best. You <laughs> should be hiring me and you should keep hiring me because look at these great results I'm producing. But I think we all know, and and I think for us now, everybody talks about imposter syndrome, and there is this real fear, concern, or or failure aspect that we want to hide and not share with people because we think it will somehow discredit or or discount us and our experience. Yeah, absolutely, and. That's why I'm like, I maybe it's because I'm such an analytical person, but I just see failure as data and I don't have a negative connotation towards it because I'm like, life is long. Like I can mess up today and I could do better tomorrow. So I don't take it personally because I know that I've accomplished a lot in my past and that if I keep trying, I'll figure it out. And I think it's been really cool to see my listeners and even my guests that come on talk to me about like, you know, I was kind of embarrassed to talk about my failures, but now like I want to talk about it with you. Like I want to embrace it because I know that someone else can relate to this, especially being a small business owner or a content creator or just engineering in general, which is so, so hard. And I swear nobody has it figured out. And if they act like they do, then like they're lying in some regard, <laughs> you know? And so I find that my customers really appreciate when I'm honest about what I can and cannot do because then I'm setting realistic expectations. But the best part is it gives us the opportunity to brainstorm together mm -hmm. and decide how can we take my half-baked idea and your half-baked idea and where we're not certain and then combine our efforts and make it so much better. And that's hard to do if you're not honest with yourself about what you're bad at and honest with who you're trying to do work for. So I I don't know, I really love it. And that's why sometimes I feel bad. I, I can't put more episodes out because I'm so strained for time. I used to do it weekly and now it's like 
one to two times a month. Mm -hmm. And I always get on and I'm like, hey guys, I know you, I owe you an explanation, but we're just going to skip right over that. I'm a busy girl. And they're, they're just like, okay, that's fine. As long as you're still trying. And I'm like, I am (laughs) doing my best. Yeah. So with, with everything, with all the content creation, um, with the YouTube, with podcasts, with LinkedIn, and I'm not on TikTok. I don't know if you have a TikTok, but I do not. I think TikTok <laughs> is one of those that also takes a lot of time. And and you're a very you're you're busy. What is where do you see the most value? And I realize that's a loaded or open ended question, but I I want to leave it that way because there value is also like what is value, and where mm-hmm. is the the best amount of value when it comes to, I guess, content creation. Yeah. So something I realized is I I've, I've given this talk at a couple conferences when they're just like, we don't know how to get started. If we're going to do anything, what's the most important thing? And for me, it's consistency. So I don't think you need to have super high quality content. You don't need to pay thousands of dollars to get a high quality production. The only time I'll let my customers pay me to make videos is if I'm like, have you tried it yourself? Are you paying me because you want my style? Like we're not paying for like, you know, camera crews and all that kind of stuff. I just think that if they put themselves out there daily and they show their personality and build their personal brands, that it's going to attract the right audience. So yes, my customers pay me money to make their videos, but we try to do it in a way where it still feels authentic and not overproduced because anyone could spend thousands of thousands of dollars to make a video. But if you just make one and then you don't continue to do things with it, then like, it's just going to, you know, fall away in the feed and it's going to get lost and no one's going to care about it unless it's literally like, you know, spot doing something really cool and Atlas and all the Boston Dynamics where that's just amazing, but they are an outlier in this industry. So we're not even going to use them as an example, but I think consistency is key. And then choosing a platform that you feel comfortable with and that where your customers are. I'm a big B2B marketer. I'm not so much B2C. And I don't think a lot of people in this industry are like, it's not too super useful to be on TikTok and Instagram when you're in this industry, unless you just have extra resources and you want to do some extra, you know, brand awareness. But I think focusing on LinkedIn and building your connections and being consistent is the best thing to do in terms of ROI. That and then email marketing. I love email marketing, but that just ties into everything. So do you have your own email, email, um, whatever? I don't even know what it's called. Do you have your own email? <laughs> I, I, I don't because my LinkedIn, I have a lot of followers. So I just kind of like, you know, post on there. And so people know who I am and I haven't gotten to the point where I need to do outreach because I have too much already in my mm-hmm. sales funnel to where it's like, I don't want to do more outreach because I I'm booked and I don't want to tell people no. So I don't, but for my customers, they all have, you know, amazing books of business with like all these contacts. And so when they're not doing email marketing, I'm like, guys, we have got to do it. And it's made such a big difference because we make, you know, YouTube videos and we can embed them into the emails. We can embed them into their websites. And then the emails, when you're doing it on a weekly basis, it's you're becoming front of mind and you're reaching people that you may not be able to reach through LinkedIn because not everybody has LinkedIn, but just about everybody has email. So for my customer types, I push email. 
I thought about starting a LinkedIn newsletter and I still might, but like I said, there's only so many hours in the day. And for me, it's very efficient just to make a quick post every day. And that's currently um, making my agenda work. So you post every day? Yes. <laughs> that's rough. It's not always something amazing though. Like today I posted a poll and I'm like, who's an introvert, who's an extrovert, and who's a little bit of both? You know, it's things like that where people just really love to give their opinion and they like to be asked how they feel about something. So anytime I do a poll, it gets crazy traction because people like to talk, you know, and they like to start conversations in the comments. And gosh, the things they say are so funny. Like, I just can't, I can't even, like, they always put in engineer jokes. And one of them today was like, what's the difference between a introvert, extra, inge <laughs> introvert engineer and extrovert engineer? And he's like, the introvert will look at his own shoes while he's talking to you. The extrovert will look at your shoes when he's talking to you. And I'm just like, these aren't things I would have come up with myself, but I guess they make me laugh. Yeah. Yeah. That's funny. So I want to, I want to talk about the, the email marketing just a touch. If, have you done a lot of research when it comes to the email marketing and, and having an email list and sending that out? Yeah, so it basically has like the most ridiculous, uh, I guess in a good way, highest ROI for any marketing effort. So basically if you're going to do anything with marketing, I would say email is traditional and it's the best. Everybody's always getting too hyper-focused on, we need TikTok, we need shorts, we need all these other things. And all of that's icing on the cake for when somebody opens your email and you have something cooler in there that you wouldn't have otherwise. But email reaches the most people, especially in these businesses that have been around forever and have all these contacts sitting around. Um, but yeah, I did a panel with some people back in February and they were more traditional marketing people and they had really good stats on the email side. And I think the ROI is like $36 to typically like the $1 that you would earn back in other ways. So it's like 36 times more efficient to use email marketing than any other kind of marketing dollar spend. And for me, I'm just like, you know, that's pretty cool. Whereas video, it's hard to get an ROI on it. That's very clear because it may perform well, it may not, but the email is always going to go to these inboxes every time. And then there's so many ways to do good emails. So having like an automated tool like MailChimp, which I don't love MailChimp, but I'll use it. Constant Contact's probably my favorite. HubSpot's good. Things like that where you can organize your efforts and have really nice, crisp looking emails that are going to actually land in their proper inbox. Okay. Because I, when it comes to the emails, and, and maybe we're going to get too nerdy here, but mm -hmm. I... I think I saw a stat once that that you have something like less than a one or two percent click through rate, meaning mm -hmm. if you send it to 100 people, maybe one person is going to open that email. And then mm -hmm. when I think about business to business transactions or B2B, I don't I don't understand how you can make an email talking about a for for you talking about making a ceramic conductor. How are we going to sell a ceramic conductor in an email to another company versus the random emails that I get about buy these new athletic shorts or look at this great bamboo shirt. It's so comfortable that I, I understand like the B to C, but the B to B it, I guess I, I'm, I'm confused. Can you, 
Do you have any more insight, any exp- explanation? Yeah. So I ideally, I'll give you an example of how I do our email campaigns. First and foremost, it's good, like I said, to have a good campaign manager like Constant Contact or MailChimp because there's this thing where your email, like you said, may or may not end up in spam or the inbox. Having a proper way of sending it will increase your chances of ending up in the inbox. That's the first most important thing. Our current open rate is about 35%, which is incredibly high. Industry average is like 15 to 20%. And we know that like, you know, a quarter of our contacts are actually just uh, out of date. And so we need to delete them. So really our, our percentage is a little higher, but how we get effective emails to kind of inspire customers would be, like I said, we do demo videos. So we do like product demos to where it'll be like a robot application. And then we embed this video into the email. And what we do is we focus more on their supplier and saying like, you know, here's an Omron collaborative robot. We made a video on it. Look how cool it is. By the way, like we also do integration, distribution, things like that to where if you're looking for a robot provider, it's us. Now, the click-through rate's actually pretty good on these because we have fun stuff. We never put pricing. We never put availability. We're never going to put a spec unless it is a fun spec. So we want it to be like, oh, this customer or this uh, company has these products. So in the engineer's mind is maybe they respond, maybe they don't, but they log it in their brain of when I need to get a cobot this is who does it. And a lot of times you'd be surprised when you're in a company that sells a lot of products that your customers don't know everything you sell because they have a hundred vendors. So if one day it pops up that you sell variable frequency drives because you made a fun video about it, they're like, oh shit, I actually need one of those. Like, you know, we're out and I didn't realize they sold them. Now I do because this popped up. And so it's really about that, like brand awareness, staying front of mind and allowing the customers to understand all that you do, but doing it in a fun way. I will never send a spec sheet unless it is like attached in a like tiny button that you can click on to learn more. I will never just be like, here's the specs on this because that's not fun. I think what would be interesting if it popped up in my inbox, what would I look at for fun? And then also you're subliminally getting them to know what you do without shoving it in their face. Does that make sense? that makes a lot of sense and i can i can completely relate because at tavera we we develop technology in geothermal ccs and traditional oil and gas really focused on unconventionals and really everything subsurface but mm-hmm. half of the time we'll be talking to somebody about one of the technologies or one of our offerings and and they will never even realize that we we can do something like CCS and help them do something very similar, just in a different space and a different group within their company. So I completely mm-hmm. understand that. And I, I see that it is a lot more fun when I'm at a conference, seeing a piece of machinery and seeing that machinery in action or in a pseudo environment kind of running, not really running, as opposed to getting a spec sheet. The spec sheets, I usually find the first recycling bin and immediately recycle. (laughs) So I, yes, absolutely. The only time I look at spec sheets are when I'm doing research for like my ceramic fasteners, when I'm like, does this, you know, semiconductor have any extra drawings to tell me what capacitor value would be good with it? But it's like, 
that's not what I need to be marketed yeah. for. You know, like, I don't want that in my email inbox. Like I need that when I'm going out to look for it because I know how to find it if I'm looking for yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to, I want to shift gears here a little bit and everything you're saying about marketing to me, if I were to summarize it, it is make things relatable and make things fun and make it so people know what, what they need or what you have that could fill a need for them. And when I think about the energy transition, when I think about climate change and low carbon, a lot of the conversation, or at least the the larger whole societal conversation, feels a lot more like fear mongering and a lot more <laughs> like, hey, this needs to be done or we all die. And that's the complete opposite of what you're saying here of how you actually get people to buy into what you're selling or, or what you want them to do. Um, I guess what's your take on that? And, and the floor is yours. Uh, well, I would have to say like fear mongering is an incredibly, uh, efficient tactic. So I totally understand why they do it. Like it is when you're coming from a very authoritative, authoritative stance and something like the government and you are scaring people, it works very well. <laughs> so can't knock them for doing it. Cause it's, you know, it's pushing their agenda and same thing for these like environmentalists that are like, you know, oh, we're all going to die it really resonates with people. So I can't blame them for using a tactic that works. Now, I'm more of a realist and I like to think that this whole term energy transition is so incredibly misused and misunderstood because of the fact that like, you can't just make people think that we are transitioning away from something. So they make it seem like we're going from oil and gas to battery electric and renewables, but it's not cut and dry. It's not black and white. I wish it was more like an energy expansion to where we're now adding in more renewables, more batteries, because in reality, we're not actually getting rid of oil and gas. We're not necessarily using it less. We are finding cleaner ways to burn oil and gas and all of that. We are finding cleaner ways to procure it while also, you know, developing more electric vehicles and um, solar and wind and all of that as ways of generating power. But you can't do electric without oil and gas because you need even for the equipment to make it the rubber on the electric vehicles tires, the materials to make the vehicles, the plastics inside, the synthetic materials, that comes from petrochemicals. Same thing for wind turbines and all the other solar things. Like when you break down the materials to make the physical product to capture that renewable energy, it requires petrochemicals. Now, there may be some very, very obscure ways of doing things to where you don't need any, like maybe you do hydroelectric, something like that. There's only so many like places of running water in the world that we can harness that from and, you know, not have to use any oil and gas byproducts. But in reality, the two go hand in hand together very well, and we need one to do the other, but we don't need electric vehicles for oil and gas. So if we were to look at it as more of an extension of our current capabilities, rather than something we're transitioning away from, we would be a lot more successful in it because we are putting so many laws and, you know, scare tactics around pushing an agenda of going fully electric 
but too many people that are pushing for this don't actually understand the real implications and the how to to do this driving an electric vehicle driving a tesla does not make you an environmentalist by any means because batteries and the the chemicals that you need for those it, going in mining like that's bad for the environment it's bad because we have you know people on the other side of the world that are you know digging it up and a lot of times it's child labor or we're having to negotiate with countries that we don't have good relationships with and things to where it's like it's not a better solution when it's one versus the other it is an awesome technology that should be used together cohesively and as an expansion so I vote to call it energy expansion rather than transition because we're not transitioning away from anything. And it's going to be a rough reality check in a, like 10 years when people are still driving gas cars because not everybody can afford to go buy a brand new electric vehicle because like people still drive cars from 50 years ago. So it's going to be, you know, it, 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 it'll work itself out. It's just a lot of propaganda right now. And it's what people are interested in talking about. But that's why... I really love that they started the Energy Pipeline podcast, the one I'm a host of, because we've had a lot of conversations about this and the actual real life implications and how this stuff works. And we're doing our part to educate people and just give them sort of the facts and let them decide what to do with it rather than coming from a place of fear. So that's why I'm thankful for that podcast. But I hope that makes sense. I always say at the, at the end of everything, I hope that makes yeah. sense because I'm like, I don't know if I ever do make sense. I think that is a, a default ending for anybody with a technical background after they give any answer is uh, I hope yeah. that makes sense. And, and your answer, it does make sense. And I, I hear what you're saying in that the, the value of oil and gas is the value of oil and gas, the value of the low carbon energy is the value of that low carbon energy. But there's this unique, unique position that low carbon energy does need input from oil and gas in order to realize its full value. And I think what I heard you saying is that if you were to combine the two in a cohesive and collaborative way, instead of a one plus one equals two, this could be a one plus one equals three or four, maybe even five. These are just mm -hmm. random numbers I'm throwing out now. <laughs> They're so accurate. Yes, yes. So when when we talk about that, I, I'm curious how, so something like my show, we mm -hmm. it, it is all about energy transition. I have a lot of people on from the oil and gas industry talking about how they're producing producing hydrocarbons more efficiently, which is ultimately better for the environment, ultimately helping us transition or it's transitioning our energy mix into a different mm -hmm. mix. How though, instead of the us versus them discussion, how do you see whenever you do have say a client coming to you saying, we need to squash this competitor who isn't really a competitor to them. They, how do you, how do you help them see a value or the value in, being collaborative and having a a positive positive human progress focused message as opposed to something negative 
I mean, I just feel like it's kind of like the basic thing that you were told growing up. Like you don't have to be mean to somebody or put somebody down when you're in a group of friends to make everybody think you're cooler. I I think it's the same thing. Like just be you, just show your value and you don't need to go out of your way to make somebody else look bad to make yourself look good. Because then if you're doing that, it, it almost draws attention in the wrong way of like, okay, what are they hiding that they feel the need to put some other company or their technology down because when you look at a lot of companies like their stuff isn't that different it's all pretty similar the technology is really similar it's like you're not gonna typically be that much better than your competitors unless you have like the human element which is like customer service your um, ability to problem solve like the the hardware is the hardware and you basically I mean, especially in industrial automation, so many companies private label each other's shit. And it's like, you're both selling the same exact thing. That's just a tiny bit different. So I, I would say if you want to do it in a positive way, focus on your positive benefits. And even, you know, every now and then you could kind of publicly, I don't want to say collaborate, but like give kudos to another company you think is doing well, even if they are your competitor, you could still acknowledge their good work. And I I feel like the same thing with, you know, oil and gas and electric vehicles, like Shell and Exxon, like they're all going out of their way to support, you know, electric type things, you know, the hydrocarbon uh, capture, all, all the different things where it's like, it's not just producing oil and gas, they're taking the extra step further because they want to be a part of the other scene as well. Like they don't want the us versus them. They want it to be that like, they're a energy company, not an oil and gas company because I mean, everything in the world is constantly shifting and changing. And I see it in oil and gas too. Like it's not just oil and gas. It's like, we want to power the world. This is how we used to do it solely. Here's how we're doing it now collaboratively. And I feel like they're doing better in terms of like PR of getting out there and getting the message that they are behind electric type things and that they do support cleaner ways of energy. And so I think when you look at it from that aspect, that it is a good positive movement and they are being like, you guys are good too. But then sometimes you get like the electric vehicle people that are like, oil and gas is horrible. Like we hate you. We hate you. And we're just like the oil and gas people are like, we're trying to support you. Like, let's be friends. <laughs> and so it's just like, chill out guys. Like everybody's doing the best they can. We're all constantly trying to innovate. And if you focus on just getting your message out there and not putting other companies and ways of doing things down, then you're going to be more successful and draw better attention. But once again, fear mongering is very effective. So if you do want to take that route, no one's going to blame you. A lot of people do it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think that, I think that this is a good, a good stopping point for the show. We can not, not the whole show. We're going to transition into my final questions. These are the questions that I ask all of my guests that first question being what is a favorite book of yours that you would recommend oh gosh i'm gonna sound so lame for saying this but my favorite book that i would say i read in college was the seven habits of highly effective people now everybody always makes fun of me because i love self-help books but that book i'm telling you like i is the only book i've ever written like a million notes in highlighted things dog-eared every page because it's one of those books where it's like, it really makes you stop and think about life. Mm -hmm. And especially there was this one part, I think it was like habit two, where you think about who, when you die is going to be at your funeral and what are they going to say about you when they're there? Like we get so caught up in like trying to achieve, trying to do so much. And it's like, 
at the end of the day, like what really matters and how are you treating people? What impression are you leaving on people? And I try to keep that in the back of my mind with everything I do. And it's like, what will people think of me when I'm gone? I mean, what do they think of me while I'm here? And how did I make them feel? What kind of impression did I leave? And then it also gives you a bunch of like, you know, good time management tricks as well. <laughs> what do people think about you? And also, how do you manage your time? Basically, it's just everything all rolled up into one. And to me, I'm not one that's like obsessed with like, oh my God, like what do people think? Like, do they think I'm like cool? But it's more like, I think focusing on how I make people feel because I don't want to be someone who like consistently makes someone feel horrible because why would you want to be around somebody like that? Yeah. Yeah. I like it. That is one that I have not read yet. That is definitely on the list. I've gotten into it's an easy read. Yeah. I've gotten into audiobooks lately and I listen to uh, good to great and okay. super easy listen and it's from the the same author and was was very very useful and he kept referring back to seven habits so <laughs> it's definitely one I I just need to find the audiobook and then go listen to it Absolutely So the next question how do we get to net zero? I don't know. <laughs> That's beyond my expertise. I don't know. That's a good question. Um, I don't have enough experience to answer that, but I would say just people need to start collaborating and you could always, you know, lie on your report. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> I genuinely, good. I don't know. I wish I, I wish I could give you a better answer, but my job is always to interview people who are a lot smarter than me and know the answers to these questions. I don't know that answer, but do you know? Well, I think <laughs> touching on collaboration <laughs> is definitely one of those key points. And as we talk about this being a, a full societal issue, if you want to call it an issue, and ultimately a, if, if we are going to get to net zero as a society, everybody has to be partaking even those that aren't real people meaning meaning corporations and government entities so it the how i thought you're gonna say babies yeah and babies babies, aren't real babies need to do more <laughs> <laughs> so it is a it is not i i used to ask the question when will we be net zero as a society and people would give out numbers but I think what's more important is how do we start getting there? And and I, I appreciate the the candid and openness because from an indiv individual standpoint, the how sometimes gets lost. Sometimes we don't even think about how do we get there. We either listen to our company and do whatever our company says, or we just kind of assume that it's going to happen somebody's going to figure it out and implement things and it'll just become part of our lives. I love that approach. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, <laughs> and I'm sure that that'll be great if it happens, but, but Absolutely. I don't know if that will, that's the scary part. Yeah. I just lost all credibility with this last question. <laughs> They're like, get her off. Why did we listen to anything? Oh, she said? <laughs> Energy transition. No idea how to get to net zero. What is she doing here? I mean, if I knew I would be doing something else with my life, I guess. That's why I just, I have a podcast where I ask people what they're doing and gosh, there's just so much to track. There's so oh, much yeah. data. There's so many methods, so many companies. It, it gives me a headache. Yeah. Yeah. 
Absolutely. And that's, I mean, that's the reason why I do this podcast is so people can start learning how, what are those technologies? Who are those companies? What are those things that are going to help us get there? And if, if larger corporations or venture capitalists want to invest in these companies that I'm highlighting or these solutions that I'm highlighting, absolutely. That's great. And that helps us, you and I, who we, we are individuals cogs in the wheel who may not have true power. We only create content and without that true power, we, we are, we are a small, small part of, of everything. So I think sharing information like this is, is how we get to help bring net zero to fruition. We could also plant more trees, Ooh, yeah. garden more. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, that's what I love when companies do that, when they like will do something bad and their emissions are over and they plant a bunch of trees. I, I think that's that's so cute. Yeah. Like <laughs> that's the cute, the cute answer. Yeah, it is. They're like, we'll just plant a thousand trees. And then it's like they're using a lot of heavy machinery when they're like out there doing it because they're not going to do it like yeah. just with people. And then it's like, oops, messed up the scale again. Yeah. Or they plant them somewhere in the Western U.S. and then it gets burnt in a fire the following year. Yeah. yeah, that doesn't work out well. <laughs> I know. I love just like the PR cover stories, though. Those yeah. crack me up. Yeah. Well, now the the final question is: you actually get to ask me a question. Okay. Um. Let's see. Hmm. Hmm. Do you drive an electric vehicle? I have a hybrid vehicle. So okay. I mean, that's the best of both worlds. Yeah. This get hella gas mileage. It actually gets terrible gas mileage. It, what? I think that the battery is, it's not dead. It still works, but the, mm -hmm. it's low capacity. So it's a, it's an older vehicle. Oh. It's from 2011. That's, I, I don't have enough money to buy a brand new vehicle, which <laughs> Sponsor the yeah, show. Sponsor yeah. The show. If anybody wants to give me a, a new car, I'll take it. But the that would be so perfect if like the energy transition solution yeah. guy drove a brand new electric vehicle that's so on brand. Yeah. Tesla, if you're listening, <laughs> donate a car. <laughs> yeah, I'll I'll take one of those new Tesla trucks. Sure, why not? Yeah. But all that to say, I think they're I drive an like I drive a hybrid vehicle because I do see I see the value there of, of wanting to do something and wanting to make individual, individual choices that ultimately will help us, me personally and my family, lower our, our emissions. Mm -hmm. So that's, I, when I realized I needed to get a new car, I did decide I want a plug-in hybrid or a hybrid. And that's how we ended up settling on this one. And it just turns out the battery's bad. So it's actually not better than the last car, except it doesn't <gasps> leak oil and pollute all the roadways that are already polluted. So yeah, yeah, it's it. You're doing the best you can. Yeah, it's a it's a decision. And, you know, I'm, I'm still going back and forth on it, trying to figure out with almost every decision, what is that? best next decision that can can drive what 
what that current personal mission is at that time. And mm-hmm. right now, energy transition, lowering my personal and my family's emissions, figuring out how to do that is one of those mission statements for for the Batir household. You guys could always breathe less, you know, take in less of the clean oxygen yeah. and not emit more. Yeah, I could, I could try that. <laughs> I actually... Um, <laughs> shallow breaths only (laughs) yeah you know what we need to do we need to plant more trees that's it yeah yeah (laughs) you need to plant more trees to offset you see it's good it's a good solution (laughs) yeah yeah good stuff good stuff well jordan thank you for joining me on the show today before we sign off is there anything else that you'd like to say um i feel like i said it all but guys uh if you want to educate me further if i said anything that you're like that was wrong that was dumb what are you talking about just message me let a girl know i'm always here to learn so i i say a lot of things and sometimes i say them fast and i have a tendency to occasionally be wrong so if i was just let me know i'm open (laughs) and if if i was right you can also tell me too i love positive affirmation (laughs) and before before i go off on my final spiel tell people where they can find you again for podcasts everything so typically if you just follow me on linkedin or connect with me there jordan yates marketing engineer my podcasts are failing for you the energy pipeline and then my youtube channel is just jordan yates plus engineering because i'm uncreative (laughs) so that's where i am it's a very engineering kind of name for your youtube channel it encompassed everything yeah (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, Jordan, thank you again for joining me on the show. And thank you everyone for joining us on this episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, share it with a friend and leave a review telling me what you're enjoying most or what you would like to hear more of. If you want more news and energy related stories, we have all sorts of energy related podcasts on OGGN. You can find them by connecting with us on LinkedIn or visiting OGGN.com. If you're into stickers, I have a way to get you some more from OGGN. You can go to my show notes, find the one question survey link, go fill that out, and then we'll send you stickers. Finally, if you have any questions, comments, corrections, or have a story that you would like to share, send me an email. The email address is ets at OGGN.com. If you don't use email, you can find me on LinkedIn. And until next time, remember to keep it low carbon and high energy. Join us again next week for another low carbon, high energy story on the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.